Uh, as we get settled in, let's go ahead. If you have a Bible with you, open uh, with me to Galatians chapter 5, where today, uh, as we enter in uh, to uh, this next portion in Galatians 5, we're going to be looking uh, or continue looking at, at Paul's appeal uh, for the believers to walk in the freedom that only comes by the good news of the gospel. You see, as we read in our call to worship this morning, Paul says, hey, uh, man, you it's for freedom because of freedom that you've been set free. Therefore, live freely. No, no longer submitting or don't turn back to this yoke of slavery. You see, we are called to a people that because of our freedom in Jesus, that we are actually allowed not only uh, to live, but we get to live freely. We get to live in light of. And so as we settle in, as we turn there, I want to begin by quickly just really recapping uh, what Rick Bowers, the guy, that, the, the church planning resident that came in and shared with us last week, what he shared uh, from the beginning of this chapter, because I believe what it does is it sets the tone for our time today, but also... I mean, I think the words found in verse 6 really not only lay the foundation for this series, which is Galatians, faith working through love, uh, but it lays the foundation for how we should view not only the means of our salvation, but also the product or the result of God's love for us. You see, Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 states that in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so let me just explain really quickly what I mean by both the means by which we are saved and the product or result of God's love for us. So we see this verse, the means by which we are saved. We see it at the beginning. It says, in Christ. This Christ, He is the means of our salvation. You see, nothing else will save you. That's all Paul has talked about for the entirety of Galatians. Works won't save you. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can produce. Nothing inside of you. Nothing, really what he's going to get to today and what he shares in verse 6, there's nothing that you can cut off from yourself. There's nothing you can add to the work of grace that can give you the life that you need. And so we see that it is only in Christ that we find the means of our salvation. But what does that mean for the product or the result? Well, the product or result is faith working through love. Again, this is not in you, but in Christ. It is given to you by grace. Faith, the faith that you have to believe in God's grace for you, is a gift of grace. You see, we... Often, or I believe the problem in our lives and the problem in our day-to-day life, the reason that we often lack faith is because we believe that it's something that we have to muster up. When it's actually something that, man, we, if if you look at Scripture, we are to cry out for, right? Like what is the the guy, he comes to Jesus and, and, and he begs for Jesus to heal his child. And Jesus says, man, you know, uh, he said, only have faith. And what does the guy say? He says, man, I, he says, I believe or I have faith. But then he says, but help my unbelief. He doesn't say, I believe, but let me go back and muster up more belief. And then maybe you'll do it. He says, no, I believe. But even in my belief, man, I'm struggling to have faith. And so he cries out. He looks to Jesus, the only one 
Well, whom Scripture says is the author and the perfecter of our what? Our faith. You see, saving faith is given to you by grace. The only faith that we produce in our strength is just that. It's our strength. And it's weak, short-lived, and it's exhausting. You see, we need faith that's not only outside of us and found in Christ, but is only found, it is found in the person and work of Jesus. And so, man, I think what we need to do in light of that is we need to do two things. We need to realize and remember what we have. Now, what do we need to realize and remember? I, I think that what we need as the people of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to realize that you have the very Spirit of God residing in you. We need to draw near to the Spirit of God. You see, we give so little, by and large, we give so little thought and time to the third person of the Trinity. We talk about God the Father a lot. We talk a lot about Christ the Son, but we give little attention to the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, we often look to trust in the faith of self instead of He, the Spirit that resides in us. Now, I know some of you, I mean, as soon as you hear the word Holy Spirit or, you know, the like you begin to think, oh, wait, where are we going? Like you start to kind of get a little tense. Like I'm not talking about what I term as ghosty here, like, you know, kind of this stuff. You're like, yeah, it's a bit off there. I'm talking about, man, the reality of the third person of the Trinity residing inside you that we must come to know the spirit for as we as Roman 8 and 8 verse 9 says of the follower of Christ are not in the flesh but in the spirit that dwells in you you see it's this faith that that Rick who shared last week says not only secures our future and fills us with hope it also drives us outward in love It's a freedom that leads us to lay down self and ask God, what do you want from me? It's a freedom, this kind of freedom, it leads us to say, God, what Jesus said in the garden, not my will, but what your will be done. It's learning to think of yourself less, right? It's to say, man, instead of serving myself, I'm going to this frees me up to actually serve others. And you know what this kind of freedom does? This kind of freedom leads you to be the first to apologize. The first to be quick to repent. The first to show grace. Man, as I say that, like, I can't wait till next week because, man, Paul's really going to get into this. He's going to talk about how, man, our words and our actions that often when they're self-seeking, we begin to devour one another. You see, this kind of freedom does two things. It leads us to love God and love others. It's deeply rooted. This is not just some tagline. It's deeply rooted in who we are. It is an identity, but also it is a way of living that is an overflow of how Jesus loves us. For while works-based righteousness leads to fear, bondage, and despair, faith working through love leads to faith, hope, and love. And this is the good news that we stand on. And it's the same good news that sends us out empowered and willing to sacrifice self for the sake of others. Man, today are you that free? 
Are you that free? Are you that willing? And so with that before us, let's look now at Galatians 5, verses 7 through 12. Paul says this, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Okay, so following this call to freedom that's laid out at the beginning of the chapter and in light of the freedom leading to faith working through love, Paul presses in with a question of warning. When he says, hey, guys, look, look at me. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's talking about, it's as if you were in a race and you began the race and then, man, you just, you just ran the opposite direction. Or, or you began to run the race and he's like, now, hey, because of the way you're running, you are hindered and you are losing the race. Now in life, if you were to think about maybe your childhood or maybe as recent as yesterday, if you were in a competition or a race, we are all, we've all experienced what it feels like to run a race, have we not? And something we all know or something everyone has learned by the experience of running is that whether you're running or what can, whatever kind of race it is, is that you can begin well but end poorly, can you not? Not only that, but if we're honest, a lot of times, man, we go in with a bit of pride before the race. And by the end, we're humbly faced with a loss. There's no one that's ever, that's won every race they've ever run. And so, man, as we think about that, maybe you have an instance in your life where you're like, yeah, I remember a time where I was really, really. Man, my ego got the best of me and I thought I could do this. And I, we started the race and man, I just, I, I lost. And so I thought about that and I don't know, maybe I've shared this story before, but uh, yeah, there was a time, there are many times uh, when my ego and pride gets in the way uh, and I begin to think I can do things that I cannot. So in 2016, during the Summer Olympics, Haley and I had gone to my family's house and we were on our way back home. And uh, we, we had been watching Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky, who were, two, in my opinion, the two greatest swimmers to ever live. If you've never seen what Michael Phelps did and what Katie Ledecky does just blows my mind. Uh, like, uh, you know, it, it, go watch it. But we're talking about it on the drive home. And Haley, who, if you don't know anything about Haley, uh, she is a, an accomplished swimmer. Uh, went to state and swimming up until a few years ago. She had her name on uh, the, the aquatic center and I would make sure to show our children every time we walked in, look at your mother up there. Uh, and she would slap me. Uh, but we were driving back and she was like, hey, swimming is great exercise. We should do that. We should do that together as a couple. That'll be a great way for us to exercise together. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then the ego kicked in. And I was like, yeah, because guess what? You may have swam and gone to state, but I can beat you. I, I got this. I've got long legs, long arms. I'm pretty, I, 
pretty athletic. Maybe I'm athletic. I don't know anymore. Uh, but I, I, I could do this. I, I'm going to win. And I, man, I just talking and talking and talking. I remember on the drive, we stopped in Waco at Academy and I got a swim cap and some goggles. I was ready. Okay. And then we went to the aquatic center and very quickly, very quickly. I realized that I was in no shape condition or nowhere near the same skill level to ever win a race in swimming against my wife. And I realized it in two ways. First was when Haley was already halfway back and I haven't even made it to the other end of the pool. And I was like, that's weird. She's going the other way. Like, did she just stop and turn around in the middle? Like, I think I'm going pretty well. But no, she had just blown by me and was already coming back. But the second thing that really made me realize this was when I felt like I was going to drown because I didn't have the coordination and know-how to swim for a long stretch and breathe at the same time, okay? So you're supposed to take a stroke, and then when you go back, lift your head up, breathe in air, and then keep going. What I would do is I would take a stroke, turn my head, not enough, and breathe in water, and then try to keep going. It doesn't work, okay? Uh, and so I'd quit after one lap. I was like, I'm done. Like, this is horrible. Uh, and it, But what it was was, man, I just, I was a little crushed. Haley felt really good. She was like, hey, I told you. See my name up on that board right there? We don't play, you know? I think that's what she said. It's just her face. She was just like, I got you, Kyle. I realized it really quickly. I mean, on that day and many days since, I found myself humbled during the race. Especially in this race or walk of faith, working through love, because, man, I begin well so often but I can easily become hindered by my pride of thinking that I can complete the race in my own strength by my own means and with the results and timing that I want. And today, do any of you find yourself in the midst of the race that began well, but as you look at it now, it's it's not going so well because you began to have faith in you and not in the source source of true faith, rest and victory. I mean, what's crazy is it happens so quickly, does it not? Like we can go from faith in Christ to faith in self like that. And just like that, we are weary, exhausted, frustrated, apathetic, angry, fearful, and anxious about how we will finish the race when the results of the race have already been won by Jesus. We, we get ready, we go through life, we say, okay, this is what I'm called to, and the results are out in front of us. Jesus Christ is our victory, and we say, yeah, I see that, but I've got to do these things. I've got to perform. You see, this is what Paul is laying before the church in Galatia here in this moment, by saying, hey, you started so well. What he means by started so well is he says, man, you started simply by faith in the work of Christ's love for you. Which is where we all started. He says, but now you've begun, Paul says, to believe that it wasn't enough and you have to finish the race on your own by doing something. I think that this verse here should be a heart check for all of us. Because we all to degrees and in moments find ourselves in the same situation. Needing to wrestle with the reality of where our faith lies. I mean, I think as we're met with that, I mean, I hope, man, by the Spirit's work today that we are met with that reality and have to wrestle with it a bit. And that we wouldn't see it as condemnation or guilt and shame, but we would cast those things to the side and say, man, this is a grace for my life. 
That this is a good wrestling where I reflect, where I walk in repentance, where I grow in dependence, faith, and grace, where I learn what it means to actually rest, where I'm empowered by the Spirit and I actually walk out active faith. See, Paul states that one can run so well and yet be hindered. But also in verse 6, he focuses on who's actually hindering the church to believe that they need to add something to that which they began the race with. You see, the completed race is faith working through love. But they've begun to believe, and at times we begin to believe that the race is incomplete. That it's faith, faith plus works that's going to help you win. And so in verse 7, he shares, he says, man, who has hindered you? And then he shares the obvious answer to the question. He says, hey, it's not God who's persuading you to do this. Which I think is very interesting if you think about it. Because often, man, when we're going through life and things aren't working out the way we planned because we don't receive the glory or the fulfillment we think we've earned or deserve, man, sometimes, a lot of times we cast blame on self. Or we'll cast blame on others. But man, if we're honest, there are times we look to God and we're like, God, this is your fault, right? You, Why are you doing this to me? I did my part, God. Why didn't you come through? But you see, what Paul says is that it's not God who's to be blamed, for He is not the one hindering us. He's rather already won the victory. We just choose to seek victory in our own power, which always ends in a loss. And so when looking at what hindered us, I believe that really it comes in three primary ways. First, it comes in a false identity or a wrong view of self. You see, pride and insecurity leads to a wrong view of self that roots our victory and what we can and must do instead of what Jesus has already done. I've said it before, no one lies to you more than you do because no one talks to you more than you talk to yourself, right? Not only that, no one hinders you as much as you do because no one gets in your way as much as you do. We are self-saboteurs at the core of who we are and left to our own devices, we'll make a mess of everything. Now, it may look really good on the outside and you may put up a good front, but remember, God sees what? God sees the heart. And the heart whose identity is seeking to find its security in self rather than in Christ alone is a heart that is forever collapsing under the weight and exhaustion of keeping up the appearance of having it all together. How many of you are just, man, you're, you're just exhausted? And I, I don't know, like, but for myself and man, for many of you that I've talked to or, uh, man, have just engaged with and heard from in, in recent weeks and months, man, I believe that we as a church, like, there's a heart weariness. Like, we, there, there's, there, you know, we understand muscle fatigue, right? Like, and when muscle fatigue happens, what do you know to do? Well, your body says, hey, stop doing that or your knees are going to break, right? Like, something bad's going to happen to your body if you don't quit. And you have to learn, like, when that happens, you have to say, nope, okay, I need a break. I need to rest. But we don't know what to do with, with when our heart's weary, when our souls are tired. You see, we often neglect that. 
But we have to learn to be at rest in our souls. And what that's going to take, I believe, is that we would be a people that would learn to stop. To sit in silence and solitude and to choose the good thing, which is Jesus. And so we have a false identity that hinders us. Second, uh, another thing that hinders us, man, circumstances of life hinder us, do they not? And for some of you today, the hindrance is the circumstance that you find yourself in currently or the things that have happened to you in your past that have come become a limiting factor to your life of faith. And that can really do two things. One, it can make you feel really paralyzed, right? Like I know for me, man, when circumstances alive or whatever it is, like, man, they begin to weigh on me and I, like, I, I can feel paralyzed. I have anxiety. I'll, I'll walk in fear or performance or grief or whatever. And, and some of those things, like, I'm actively fighting against, right? Because the battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against, you know, the spirits and principalities uh, of Satan. And, and so, it, it, but I feel that. But I think there's another way that circumstances hinder us. And the, the other way is that, man, I think if, if we're honest, we want to be stuck in them sometimes. We want to be the victim of our circumstance. We won't let go because if you let go, you might actually have to deal with the real hurt and pain of the situation. You would rather stay hindered than turn to Jesus who takes and heals our broken circumstances by way of being crushed and broken for us. You see, Jesus is a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief so that He might be able to not only carry your grief, but to emphasize and empathize and heal it. And I think we know that. But so often in our pride, we won't allow God to open those things up and actually heal them. Because maybe what, what, what's going to happen? If I really press into those hurts and pains and the broken reality of that circumstance, what's going to happen? And then we begin to just think, well, maybe this will happen or maybe this. No, actually, God will bring healing to it. It may not look like what you want, but it'll be like by his grace, it'll be his. his, I mean, he works all things for the good of those in Christ Jesus. But then lastly, and and really I think this is what Paul is getting at when he's talking about this hindering. Man, others, right? What he means by others is any who would call you to salvation by works or performance. You see, what Paul is really pressing in on in this verse, and really what he's going to do with what follows, is, is say, hey, man, these other people are hindering you. He's trying to reveal to the Galatians and to us that when we put our faith in what we can do in our circumstances or in works-based righteousness, he's saying you are being boxed in from actually running the race you're called to run. We're hindered from living the life Christ has called us to live, a life of faith working through love. I mean, at times, other people can actually hinder us from running the race. Now, we'll say this before we press in. Man, sometimes we just cast that blame on other people and say they're hindering. They're really not. We're just that it's just a way we can shift the blame of our own mess on other people. So don't call it that if it's not that. But if it is, man, we need to realize it and we need to know what to do with it. And something I love watching is track and field. It's honestly I don't watch it that often, but whenever it's on, like it's one of my favorite sports to watch. 
Because, man, when I watch the, the, the competition found in track and field, man, I find it to be so pure because it's person against person. There's no special equipment, really. It's just a race or a challenge to see who's the better athlete on that day. You see, in, tra- in track and field, there's a term for really for longer races called being boxed in. I think this is what Paul is talking about. And what that term boxed in means is that during a race, a group of runners, that what they'll do is they'll intentionally seek to box in a faster, more competent runner to slow them down. And so you'll see it sometimes or what will happen is you'll know, hey, this is the guy or the, or the girl that's supposed to lead or win this race. And immediately, man, uh, intentionally, likely, man, the, just these people will form around them and try to get them in the middle. And what happens at times is being boxed in, the runners trying to run, and those around them will begin to try to step on their toes to get them off their rhythm. They'll begin to, uh, you know, uh, I've heard they kick backwards to try to cut their shins with their track cleats, or uh, begin to elbow them and push them just so that they can slow them down. I remember when I ran track in school, we had a joke. I ran longer distance. Uh, and it was when you run, you go earring, pocket, earring, pocket, earring, pocket. But when someone came next to you, you went earring, pocket, earring, their pocket, right? Like you hit them in the stomach. Like that's what we would say. It was like, hey, you know, our coach would say that. We never did it. But it was like, you know, make sure, like, don't let them get ahead of you. You see, for the Galatians... Paul sees this and what he sees what the Judaizers are are doing in seeking to box in the church. They were running alongside the church. They were seeking to agitate, to elbow and to influence them to run a race they couldn't win. And so this is why Paul presents this proverb that Jesus actually he says something similar in Mark chapter eight. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Paul also uses the same proverb in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says a little leaven does what? It leavens the whole lump. You see, what he's revealing here is that anything that seeks to hinder us from running freely, be it self, circumstance, or others, is an additive that when added will affect the whole of one's life. A little leaven leavens it all. What this means is it doesn't take much to infiltrate and in this case corrupt the whole loaf. And the same holds true for our lives. Like a little sin is not just a little sin, right? A little pride is not just a little pride. A little workspace righteousness is not just a little, but it carries huge implications for one's heart and life. See, this response by Paul carries eternal ramifications because what he's essentially saying is it's all or nothing. It's either all the leaven of Jesus that, as corny as it sounds, uh, causes us to rise from death into life. Or it's the leaven of performance that causes us to seek to rise to our own standard of salvation and security. You see, one gives life now and in eternity, and one gives the false hope of doing enough in this life so that you might have life in eternity. These are heavy words by Paul here in the text. But but look at how he transitions in verse 10 by stating where his confidence lies. He's laid all this before the church, and then in verse 10, he, he says, I have confidence, even in the midst of everything the Galatians are dealing with, that those who are what? Those who are in Christ 
will take no other view than faith alone. You see, Paul's not trying to win an argument with the church in Galatia so that by his words alone they would be transformed. Paul doesn't believe if I just say the right thing at the right moment, something that I do, something that I say is just going to make it click. Man, how, that, that's how often we, or that's how we often respond, right? We want to see transformation by the way of, uh, of well-placed words. At times, that, that's a threat for me as a pastor, right? Oh, if I could just say this thing the right way on a Sunday morning, or if I could just, you know, man, it's going to change some hearts, or it's going to do this, or it's going to do the work that I really think needs to be done, or whatever it is. If I can just, man, if I can say it sternly enough to my children, they're going to get it, right? Do they? N- no. <laughs> At least not long term. If I, as a husband, just say the right words, or as a spouse, say the right things, if I, whatever it is. But you see, the problem is that we get in the way. And we say things that are unhelpful. Any of you ever say anything that's unhelpful? Sometimes. I think the way the, the two ways this comes about is that we either say things that are hurtful or that are harmful. Let me express what I mean by that. We, we say things first that are hurtful. So in the midst of life, when we're dealt with situations, we allow our own emotions to get in the way, do we not? And because when we are uh, in this attitude of this heart of self-seeking and self-preservation and self-motivation of that, man, everything is about me and revolves around me. Man, when our emotions get in the way, we say a lot of things that aren't, they're not, they're, they're, they're hurtful to others. We tear down and we show little grace. You know, we, we say it all the time. I heard it a lot growing up. If you don't have anything nice to say. Don't say anything at all. And the way we define that is if you're going to say something that's really, really mean, don't say that. But that's a very limited definition of what that actually means. And I think that if you're going to only say nice things, you don't need to say anything that's demeaning. How many of you, like, instead of, well, I'm not saying anything mean, but I'm going to say something that's really sarcastic. And it, I'm, I'm using it as a weapon, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a comment here, and it's gonna seem encouraging, but then it's gonna be really backhanded. And that's what we do. But not only is it hurtful, it's also harmful. You see, oftentimes in conversation in life, we push performance by way of wisdom instead of grace. We seek instead of giving people the good news of Jesus, we just want to give them what? I'm gonna give them my advice, right? I, I'm, I don't even know how old I am anymore. I'm almost 35, I think. I got some wisdom. Can't remember how old I am, but I got some wisdom, right? Like, I can tell you, okay? Don't tell me, but I'm gonna give you all my advice. Really, I just need to give them, well, this is what Jesus says. This is who Jesus says you are. You see, Paul's response is the opposite. Because Paul says, man, my confidence is not in the winning an argument so that you would believe better or perform better. He says, really, what he's saying is that's just a false gospel. 
No, rather, Paul trusts in God to do the work. Now, does that mean Paul never says anything? No, he wrote almost all of the New Testament. Paul had a lot of things to say. But he knew that there was a time and place for words and we should use them when given them. Not just because we want to fill the air. You see, Paul responds with prayer, faith, and dependence upon God to do the work. Paul gets self out of the way and allows the Spirit to do the work of revealing sin and bringing others to repentance. Our job is to be quick to listen and slow to speak, Scripture says. But we miss it because we are the opposite. We usually only listen so that we can build our case to speak, which often does more harm than good. But not only is Paul's confidence in God's grace to do the work of transformation in the lives of Christ followers, he's also confident that those, he says, man, even those who are troubling you and boxing in the church, he goes, he goes they're going to bear the penalty. It's the penalty that he talked about in Galatians 1 where he said, anyone that would preach a gospel that's different than what you first heard, let them be cursed. And so then he, he lays this out. And then in closing, we get verses 11 and 12. Which give us both confidence and warning. In verse 11, Paul presents the fact that in living a life that proclaims grace alone and the circumcision of the heart, he says, even in my freedom from performance, he said, look, even though I'm, I, I'm not about performance, I understand. He's like, and I, he says, I'm not free from persecution. And this is a profound statement because essentially what Paul is saying is, hey, you need to know that even if you turn in repentance from your desire to perform, don't think that persecution will stop. For even if this hindrance is removed from you, hostility from the outside, be it your own self, be it the circumstances alive or others, are still going to be a constant threat. For the gospel is offensive and will always bring with it pushback. And so when we think about, man, ourselves, our circumstances and others, man, what we realize is, man, all three of those things push back against the good news. We, you push back against the good news. This is an example of how we do it. Okay, I believe it, but is it really just grace alone? I don't have to, you mean to tell me I don't have to do anything? There must be something I can do. I'm, I, I'm not that lovable, Right? God couldn't love me that much. That is us pushing back against grace and the good news of the gospel. Circumstances cause us to push back against the good news. Something happens in your life and you're like, no, it can't be that good because this happened. Or if I would have just done this, then that wouldn't have happened. No, that's karma. Jesus is greater because He defeated Our greatest circumstance. Sin, death, and the grave. Right? But others push back. Like others say, hey, in our our culture and context, oftentimes it's like, well, just be a good person. Yeah, just be, just, just go to church. Just check the box. Like be a good person. It doesn't matter really what you do during the week. Just as long as they see your face on Sunday. Or it's, hey, just as what, what Galatia, the church in Galatia is dealing with, hey, just be like me. You have to add this to it. 
You see, in all of this, all of those pushbacks are in line of the offense that the gospel is offensive. But you see, if you remove the offense of the gospel, which is the only way to stop the pushback, you remove the gospel. Which leads to what Paul stated in verse 4. He says, man, it is a cutting away or a, you're removing yourself. You see, a performance-based gospel is no gospel at all, for it fully removes one from grace. Now, it's not just a little bit of remove. It's the entire thing. Which is why verse 12 reveals to us a graphic warning and challenge to the Judaizers and any who would look to works as a means of salvation. So we're about the, what I'm about to say is, it's, it's Paul, it's blunt, it's graphic, okay? If you're in Women's Equip this week in the homework of Women's Equip, they talk about this. But what Paul says in verse 12, he says to any who would require circumcision as a means of salvation, he says, hey, look, they should just go ahead and cut it all the way off. Because it's their performance that reveals that they themselves have cut themselves off from grace. You see, this is the reality of the gospel. It's either all or nothing. It's either the circumcision of the heart and the act of cutting away, man, the hardness of our heart and receiving a heart, and not a heart of stone any longer, but a heart of flesh renewed by the gospel. Or it's cutting away oneself from grace and saying, no, I'm just going to keep performing. It's either grace alone through faith that works itself out through love, or it's faith in self and pride that leads to nothing but weary bondage and death. The argument made by Paul can be summarized as this. Trust in Christ's work alone for salvation. Find your right standing in Him and resist anyone, even yourself, who points you somewhere other than Christ alone. So where are you today? What race are you running? Is it one of faith? Working through love? Or is it one of, man, I just got to perform some more. What's hindering you today? Is it you? (laughs) Is it your circumstance? Maybe a previous circumstance? Is it others? As you think about these things, how do you need to repent and grow in faith that leads to confidence in Christ alone? What lies or methods of unbelief need to be cut off from your life today? And is it performance today? Like, man, Jesus, I just need you to cut this, man, this performance mindset. Just cut it away. Is it pride? Man, I'm so quick to just get ramped up and begin to make my argument. To use my words to hurt and harm. And I think all of us, if we're honest, there are areas in our lives today where we're like, hey, man, I'm hindered in that area. Because I'm believing a lie that I have to do something. And I'm putting a pressure on myself. That Jesus actually says, no. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to have the team come back up. And man, I want us to just reflect on that. I want us to wrestle with that reality this morning of, man, where. What, where, what race are you running today? What is hindering you? 
What do you need to lay at the feet of Jesus today? Jesus, maybe you've been holding on to a circumstance or something that happened for years. You say, no, I'm just going to lay that at your feet. I'm going to trust that you are good and that my salvation rests in you and you alone. May we lay down our pride and our performance. And in doing so, may we be empowered by the Spirit that resides in every follower of Jesus to be empowered to to live a life of faith that works itself out through love. That we would walk in the freedom that has actually really set us free. No longer going back to the bondage of slavery. I'm going to pray for us and then and I'm going to give you some time to reflect on that. If you need prayer for something, I'll be up here at the front. You can come and pray with me. If there's someone around you that you know, like, hey, man, I need prayer for this. This is where I'm struggling right now. This is where, man, I'm being hindered or running a race that's really just the rat race of life, the rat race of performance. And, um, but also, we want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, we invite you to come and share in communion. Uh, man, we uh, believe this is a remembrance of what Jesus has done. This is a remembrance of the freedom we have in Him. That He has paid it. That we don't have to perform. That we get to share in what He has done. In the victory. We're going to sing and worship. So Jesus, I thank You that You are the victorious one. That You receive all the glory and honor and praise. Because You deserve it. You are the only one that's worthy of it. God, I pray that, that as we uh, reflect, uh, man, Holy Spirit, I pray that You would um, reveal to our hearts those areas of hindrance or performance or whatever it is, be it in because of uh, circumstance or, uh, man, wrong identity and belief in the good news or whether, man, there's just other people around us that are calling us to something that is not what You have stated in Your Word. May we lay those things at Your feet uh, in repentance. May we cry out and know that, man, You are gracious, that You are merciful, that You are better news for our souls. But let it not just stay here. Let it transform our lives. That we would actually live freely. Give us that grace this morning. It's only by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.